Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm Melena Race. And I'm Alex Galliano. You're listening to Episode 6. Farewell, Spitzer. As the name of the episode implies, we are paying homage to a great telescope whose life is ending. It's NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope. And after 16 years of fabulous work, its life is coming to an end at the end of January. I can only wish in the first 16 years of my life I had done as much as Spitzer has done in the 15 years of its life. (laughs) Truly. For those who don't know, uh, Spitzer was launched in 2003. And around the turn of the 21st century, NASA launched uh, four great observatories, as they were called. Hubble is the most famous, um, and Spitzer is one of them. Now, Spitzer is observing in the infrared which is from about 3 to 150 microns wavelength. The problem with the infrared is that objects on Earth emit in the infrared because of how warm they are. And so the telescope will just pick up its own infrared signal from its temperature if it's not cooled. And so that makes it so challenging because the detector and the telescope have to get cooled really, really low temperatures in order to be able to see things in outer space as opposed to itself. I've heard it being described as like if you're looking around for something in a dark room while shining a flashlight in your eyes. Ooh, that's a good one. It's it's a very hard thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) So the solution was to pack Spitzer with a special type of cryogen, which could be used to cool its detectors, which is challenging, it's expensive to produce, it's potentially dangerous, and it's limited. And in 2009, it basically ran out of cryogen and they had to slowly warm up the telescope, which meant that it couldn't do some of the things it used to. And a lot of scientists were like, well, let's pack it up, Spitzer's over. But it turns out that even when it warmed up, it could still do some great science, but only in the near infrared, that is the infrared closer to the visible light. And in fact, Some of its greatest work came from warm Spitzer. Before it officially retires and spends the rest of its life gradually spiraling away from Earth, let's take some time today and and honor this great telescope that resulted in thousands of wonderful papers and great science. So could you tell us why this telescope is being decommissioned? I mean, we're still able to use it even though it isn't cooled. There's still... A lot of important science coming out of it. Um, so what is the reason that we aren't going to continue to use Spitzer for another decade? Yeah, good question. Uh, the challenge is that its orbit has moved it such that its solar panels don't directly face the sun. And so it runs out of power quickly. Its batteries are also old, so they don't recharge and hold charge as easily as they did when it was first launched. And within uh, a year or so, it's going to be on the opposite side of the sun from Earth, which is just means it's impossible to downlink from the telescope to Earth through the sun. So it's it's basically at a, at a point here where its use right now is marginal and is going to become useless very soon. So NASA made the choice to no longer fund it. But it's 
it's not like it had its funding cut and could be used. It's really at the end of its life. Yeah. Well, it'll be a graceful decommissioning then. I respect that. But it's still sad that it's <laughs> ending. <laughs> do you guys have any memories of how you personally use the telescope? I do, yeah. Last year in my observational astronomy course, we had to write an observing proposal. And I was writing one on looking for potential OH and H2O masers in M31, in the Andromeda galaxy. Cool. And it turns out that OH masers and near-infrared emission are correlated in uh, several different galaxies. And so I superimposed on this infrared map of Andromeda created by Spitzer the potential sites of OH and H2O maser emission. And this this map in the infrared, if you haven't seen it, it's really incredible. I think they used uh, like 3,000 composite images to create this really, really high-resolution image of where all the, all the dust is hiding underneath the uh, starlight that you see from M31. What do you have to Google to find this cool picture? If you just Google M31 infrared, M31 dust, M31 spitzer, all of these should pull it right up. Awesome. I recommend the high res. We could probably link to that in the show notes as well. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Melena, do you have a memory to share? Yeah, I mean, I've never actually worked with Spitzer myself. Um, a lot of my work has not used data directly, and so I haven't had a chance to actually tinker with what Spitzer has given us, but it's pretty revolutionary in the field of exoplanets, and a lot of the work that it's done over the past decade or so has been geared towards exoplanets, if not even before that i mean i haven't been around well i have been around that long but not not in astronomy astronomer <laughs> melina hasn't been around <laughs> astronomer melina has not been a lot around that long um and so i used to actually be super set on working on exoplanet atmospheres i was really amped about them i did lots of work on it um in undergrad and i therefore read a lot of papers that use Spitzer because it was so valuable in order to understand exoplanet atmospheres, their structure, their composition. Uh, so I have this really deep-seated appreciation for Spitzer because of all of this background reading that I've done, even if I haven't had a chance to use it myself. Uh, so Will, have you used Spitzer? I have. Uh, I've used some of the publicly available data um, and it really was a, a special time in my life because when I was in high school, um, I got the chance to do astronomy research through a course I took. And it's something I would you know, love to share more on, a, on an episode when we get to talk about our research and interests. But uh, one of the things I was doing was working with a professor who had a radio telescope. And we were looking at the plane of the Milky Way. And, and this radio telescope was used to map certain features. And he asked me to see if I could try to map where supernova remnants were in the plane of the galaxy, which was a really hard project. Um, it's not something that, that panned out at that time, but it exposed me to a lot of science, and I really enjoyed it. And one of the things we used was the GLIMPS survey using Spitzer. GLIMPS stands for Galactic Legacy Infrared Midplane Survey Extraordinaire. And it, it really is extraordinary. Um, it was a very, very thorough mapping of the Milky Way in infrared. Um, and this is the plane of the Milky Way. And what we use that for is to corroborate with the radio telescope, hoping that the things we found on the radio telescope would not show up in the infrared. And that would mean they are what we were hoping they were non-thermal um, emission because the infrared would be thermal. But it turns out they were thermal and, and it was unfortunate we didn't find what we were looking for. But 
I was really happy to use that. And uh, I think back on it, I use that data really with no knowledge of how the telescope worked at all. So it's 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 cool that I was able to do that. And I uh, if I did that project now, it, it'd be fun as well. Yeah, that's a super impressive high school project. <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> that you were able to do that even back then. Oh, well, yeah, thank yeah. you. I'm very grateful for the professor who took me under his wing and made it possible for me to do research at that level. But so you're saying Spitzer at the time had created the highest resolution infrared map of the midplanet of our galaxy. You bet. Very cool. Yeah. So speaking of maps, that's actually what my astrobite is about. If you guys want to hear a little bit more about different kinds of maps. Go for it. But I'm not talking about galaxies, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I occasionally talk about galaxies, but as one might suspect, I am talking about exoplanets because Spitzer has done so much for the world of exoplanets. And so how could I possibly not? And so there are lots of really wonderful maps of our Earth, as many of us have seen at some points in our lives. <laughs> um, but for exoplanets, that's not really the case. You can't see like these beautiful continents. Even if they exist, it's not really clear uh, exactly what the structure on the surface of these exoplanets looks like or even what the atmospheric structure is. But we're actually getting a little bit closer to understanding these exoplanets and their 2D, if not 3D structure in greater detail. And the astrobite that I'm going to be talking about is discussing these maps. It is called More Informative Mapping of Exoplanetary Peekaboos by Vatsal Panwar. And the paper that it's talking about is Roustra et al. 2018. Well, my understanding is exoplanets are just so far away, all we can see with them is one pixel of resolution. So, and, and, and that same pixel also has the star it orbits. So, gosh, how, how can we possibly produce a map with that level of resolution we have? Yeah, so as you can imagine, again, we're definitely not going to get, like, a beautiful detailed map. Um, but we have to start somewhere, and you actually can get more information than I would have initially thought before exploring this topic in more detail. And so if you monitor a planet over its entire orbit as it orbits a star, then different parts of that planet will come into view. And you can see the day side of the planet, which is illuminated by the star during certain points. And you can see the night side, which is not illuminated at other points. Uh, And so you can track the integrated light of the planet and the star together over its entire orbit to get something called a phase curve. And this gives you some information about uh, primarily the longitude of the planet, although you can also get some latitudinal information, and it gives you information to study the structure of these atmospheres. So you could study, for example, these phase curves of wavelength dependence, how they change with different wavelengths um, and their shapes to learn more about the composition of your atmosphere. And Spitzer was really, really important for getting these phase curves. Um, in particular, the authors of this paper used eight micron observations of thermal emission from Spitzer to study these planets in more detail. So Spitzer's pretty well known for lots of phase curve work in exoplanets. That has been really important to understand exoplanets, which, I mean, exoplanet atmospheres in particular are one of those really big frontiers that we're just starting to pierce. And we're at, like, the tip of the iceberg right now. Very cool. 
Milena, I know you well at this point, and I know you wouldn't pick an Astro Bite to talk about if it didn't have modeling in it. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Yeah, so (laughs) you got me. (laughs) This Astro Bite has lots and lots of modeling, and so we're going to dig into a little bit of theory. So hopefully this doesn't get too intense. Let me know if I need to (laughs) define terms in more detail. Um, So we're looking for a general functional form of the map of this planet. So we use a linear combination of something called Fourier basis functions. So these are different spherical harmonic maps, which are just different maps that are orthogonal in that they don't provide any of they don't provide overlapping information and the authors here are using something called principal component analysis pca to figure out what spherical harmonics they can use in order to best characterize this particular exoplanet Um, so they're trying to break down the information that they get from these phase curves into these spherical harmonics in order to model the map of this exoplanet to get some sort of a two-dimensional map that at least captures the broad uh, characteristics of the exoplanet, even if it's not going to tell you like all the very specific details of where different like land masses are, for example. So, uh, Milena, I think I'm yeah. still a little unclear on how you go from the basis function to the 2D map of the planet. How, how do you relate these uh, theoretical mathematical concepts to real physical data yeah so they're mapping to these phase curves and so you can figure out if you have a planet that is characterized by some particular function then you can figure out what sort of a curve that would represent and you get these things that they end up calling eigen curves and so you have multiple curves that sort of add together to create your final curve that you end up observing. So they're trying to reproduce these phase curve observations by putting together these spherical harmonic models and finding the top four components uh, that characterize this exoplanet. And they fit uh, a couple of different scenarios. They're specifically looking at this one planet, HD 189733, and trying to characterize that planet it's one of the best characterized hot jupiters that's sort of a standard for exoplanet modeling in order to test different types of models Uh, and they wanted to figure out what kind of information you can get from the full orbit versus just the point where the planet is going behind its host star which is called the secondary eclipse and So they ended up finding out that a lot of the latitudinal information of the planet comes from the eclipse, and a lot of the longitudinal information comes from the rest of the orbit. Uh, There's a lot of math that I'm definitely just sort of brushing under the rug right here. Uh, It's a little bit hard to go into spherical harmonics into too much detail on the air without pictures, but I definitely recommend looking at the article if you're interested in digging into exactly how they do this with math. There's a great image showing how spherical harmonics works on the Wikipedia page for spherical harmonics. And it just shows these kind of balls with different light and dark regions. And that's kind of like building up the complexity of a planet by combining multiple of them. Right. So you can, that's a great, you know, little image to look at. We can probably link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, lots of links. We have limited characters in the show notes. 
<laughs> we'll, we'll do our best. We have to use like short <laughs> URLs or something. <laughs> so, sounds pretty cool, though. Definitely an achievement of Spitzer to do something that it really was never designed to do, which is the exoplanets. Right. There was also one of the, the great discoveries of Spitzer is it learned about dust, uh, made it a lot more exciting than people thought it was. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And that's what I'm going to be talking about. So my astrobite is called Dusty Supernovae by Ian Chekala. And if you know anything about me, you know that, of course, I would pick the supernova one. It's based on a paper by Fox and others in 2011. And specifically, Fox and his colleagues were wondering where all this dust came from. I was, I was hoping we'd get some, some more dust discussion in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're definitely going to get no some. <laughs> if, if only just to appease you, Will. <laughs> so I, I don't think we really delved into the composition of dust, but it's mainly composed of micron-sized metals in the universe, uh, kind of akin to soot from a, a burning fire like we would find on Earth. And so if it's made of metals... It is kind of intuitive that you would want to look for it, its production in stars, because that's where metals are made. But specifically, at what stage in their lives do they produce this dust? So this is what Fox and his colleagues were looking for, and they scanned the skies using Spitzer in search of type 2n supernovae. Oh, type 2n. I'm not sure that I remember which one that is. Is that a new one? The... <laughs> Can you remind us of the different it's... subclasses, Alex? <laughs> sure, yeah. It's a, it's not a new one. The problem is a lot of supernova nomenclature doesn't have much bearing on the underlying physics of what's going on in these uh, explosions. But just as a quick dive, for our listeners, type 1 supernovae, are supernovae whose spectral lines lack hydrogen. Okay, you can't find hydrogen in the emission spectra. Type 2 has hydrogen. Okay, so it's purely an observational classification. And uh, this is, again, why it's a little bit difficult uh, for this data nomenclature is the subclasses could have entirely different physics going on within the same class. Type 2n specifically is a core collapse supernovae. The massive star undergoes core collapse and the N stands for narrow, so it has narrow hydrogen lines atop the more traditional broad lines in the emission from the explosion. And this is likely from hydrogen that's blown off pre-supernova in this shell around the star at the end of its life that's moving a little more slowly. And it's the 2N that would be the source of the dust? Uh, this is a good question, and the reason Fox uh, was looking at it was because at late times, infrared emission suggests that there's more warm dust associated with type 2n supernova than with other core collapse supernovae. So, the authors conducted a warm spitzer follow-up of 68 different type 2n events discovered between 1999 and 2008 in the mid-infrared where warm dust is going to peak. And I just love that uh, they did a follow-up observation of all these different supernova. I love the idea uh, that you can do this because, I don't know, you think about like a, a Michael Bay movie or something where the explosions happen really quickly and they're uh, really energetic and it happens and then it's over. And and think about looking at this explosion and then 10 years later, oh, you look back and it's still right there, still exploding. Kepler's supernova actually having exploded in 1604, reported on by Kepler, is currently expanding at uh, 9,000 kilometers per second, or 20 million miles wow. per hour. Are you saying, like, the supernova you can still see for a very long time, even though it's expanding super quickly? Is that slow for a supernova? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I like to think about it 
as if the universe sneezed <laughs> and its sneeze went ah 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 choo <laughs> you know i mean it's just weird to think that an explosion would last so long and dwarfs aren't the only sneezers <laughs> in in any case fox and others observed infrared emission with spitzer and they considered two main models for what caused Ooh, you know i love models can you tell yeah, us about so, them so the two main models were that dust formed within the supernova uh, right behind the forward shock and the second was that the dust was pre-existing in the circumstellar medium around the star before it exploded and do they know which one's more likely yeah so uh they make a geometric argument uh for how you might see the uh, spectrum of hydrogen from this supernova if the dust were newly formed in the explosion and they saw this phenomenon but only for three out of 68 of the type 2n interesting plus there's not enough dust to explain that infrared emission to begin with so that means it has to be the other model with pre-existing dust then right probably yeah so they think that there's pre-existing dust distributed around the supernova and they uh, tested a couple different geometries uh, with the infrared luminosity to predict exactly how this dust is distributed and they think their their major result is that it's likely pre-existing dust that's been blown out from the extreme progenitor outflow, or maybe a couple outflows, that happened immediately before the supernova, which you might have expected as well, because type 2n, you know that there's hydrogen in the circumstellar media already. Interesting. And and actually, I didn't mention it, but this is kind of connected to the um, masers and the infrared emission that I talked about for stars in Spitzer, because it's thought that these same stars might produce a ton of dust and metals, and so the masers should be caused by the metals that are spit out, and the infrared emission should be caused by the dust spit out by these massive stars. Does that make the progenitors the major dust factories, you're saying? It's most likely, yeah, but it depends on specifically how much dust is going to be vaporized by the supernova. So future models should bear that out. Um, does that mean it's time for a dust fact? <laughs> 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 I knew it you was know, coming. actually, I think it's it's time for you to tell us about your astrobite. <laughs> All right, fine. <laughs> Tempting as it <laughs> Sorry is. Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> right. Uh, so today I'm going to talk about brown dwarfs. Ooh. Now, believe it or not, we have not discussed brown dwarfs on the podcast. Wow. I can't believe we made it this far without mentioning them. No time like the present, right? <laughs> All right, let's, let's do it then. Um, the... Primer on brown dwarfs, for those who don't know, is that they're somewhere between a planet and a star. And I could take a lot of flack for saying that because it's way more complicated than that. But the idea is they're bigger and, and hotter than planets because they contract a little bit and heat up, but they're not massive enough. They don't contract enough to fuse hydrogen like a star. Some of them can fuse deuterium, which is hydrogen with an extra neutron, for a little bit of time, but not for long. Um, and we don't know how they formed. They might be oversized planets or they might be undersized stars. We really don't know. But this astrobite is called The Curious Case of the Mysterious Overluminous Brown Dwarf, written by Jessica Roberts, published uh, in 2018. And the paper is called A Significant Overluminosity in the Transiting Brown Dwarf CWW89AB, written by Beatty and others. So do we know right now how brown dwarfs move through the HR diagram? Just for all of our listeners, let's recall the HR diagram, Hertz from Russell diagram, is a plot of the luminosity versus temperature or color of a star. 
and different stars follow different quote-unquote tracks depending on their mass throughout their lives? It's a good question, and at this point, it's, it's too challenging to know exactly what track they'll take. The trickiest part for the models to run on brown dwarfs is they need to know mass, radius, luminosity, and age to track on the HR diagram. And so far, no single brown dwarf has given all four, which makes it really hard because if you get pieces of the information from one, you can infer the other, but only if you have a good model. So without all four to infer the model, there's no way the model can infer when you have three, for instance. Yeah, that seems like hard information to get about any astrophysical object. What about specifically for the brown dwarf found in your bite? How many of these things could they measure? This was a pretty cool one. Uh, and this brown dwarf was first discovered by Kepler, and it orbits a main sequence star. So it's not a brown dwarf with planets around it. It's kind of like a planet brown dwarf orbiting a star. And they could easily find three things with Kepler, uh, age, radius, and mass. But they couldn't get the fourth with Kepler alone. So I assume that's I where Spitzer comes in, potentially? Yep. <laughs> Spitzer right. is the hero <laughs> to rescue this problem. And Spitzer observes this brown dwarf as it passes behind the star that hosts it. And what that tells you is how bright the brown dwarf is. And they found it's 16 times brighter than the models would have predicted. It's wow, double geez. the temperature that they predicted. Well, order of magnitude, right? So, I mean, that just makes it sound well, like there's something wrong with your <laughs> models, right? Uh, that, that was my first suspicion that, well, the model's wrong. But I dug into the paper and the authors really don't think it's that because this is the only one that contradicts it so far. Is it possible that the star is heating up the brown dwarf more than you might have expected if it were by itself? Maybe a little, but definitely not enough to double the temperature. They suspect, without a lot of information, that it could be a temperature inversion in the atmosphere of the brown dwarf. Interesting. <laughs> temperature inversion. What is that? <laughs> it's when you have a layer in the atmosphere that's hotter than the layer below it. This happens in Earth, in the, in the uh, stratosphere, that the temperature gets colder and colder, and then it starts getting warmer again. And then it gets colder again. So it looks like you have this big, like, elbow in a plot of temperature versus altitude. I see. And it's inverted from what you might normally think the temperature should do. Decrease as you radiate, move outward. Exactly. Yeah, I've, I've heard about this in the case of exoplanets, but I didn't know that it also happened for brown dwarfs. Um, do you know why that is the case or what could cause that in a brown dwarf? As I understand it, the thing that they speculate could be causing it is a, lar a lot of carbon dioxide relative to the amount of oxygen. It's kind of acting like a blanket in the upper atmosphere trapping down heat. But they don't really have a lot of data to support that. This is the first time it's really been thought of for a brown dwarf. So, I mean, Spitzer did a great job finding this huge finding. But we're really going to have to wait until the James Webb Space Telescope can do more infrared study on these things to answer this question. Well, thanks, Spitzer, for opening the door. Absolutely. <laughs> and that brings us to one-sentence summary time. Alex, want to lead us off? Sure, yeah. Once thought to be the messy dust makers of the universe, Type 2N supernovae might actually be the cleaners, sweeping <laughs> through and destroying dust made by their progenitors. What about you, Melina? Uh, well, they're not all quite Leonardo da Vinci status, but phase curves measured by Spitzer allow us to create somewhat detailed maps of exoplanets, such as HD 189733b, and we can quantify this with 
principal component analysis to learn more about exoplanets and how they're structured. And so that brings us to you, Will. What is your one-sentence summary? Spitzer didn't find this new brown dwarf I talked about, but it did reveal the most important property. It's much, much more luminous and hot than predicted, and we have no idea why. All right. Well, we tributed Spitzer in a number of different ways. Uh, three great astrobites, fun to talk about, fun to listen to. And we know where infrared astronomy is going. Uh, it's going to be the James Webb Space Telescope, as I alluded to earlier, that was supposed to launch years ago and may not launch again for a year, two years, three years. It's, it's a little uncertain at the moment. So we're going to have a gap in infrared astronomy. And, and what will we do without an infrared space telescope? That's a good question. Yeah, I had heard that Spitzer in just its final maybe six months of operations is going to give us this wealth of data that'll take us decades to comb through. So I'm sure there will be no shortage of research questions to ask. Um, but it's true, you raise an interesting point. I think originally they thought James Webb was going to launch by the time they decommissioned Spitzer. And so it right. would be a a quick handoff, but that's not happening anymore. Yeah, I mean, people are still going through all the data from Kepler, and I don't really see that ending anytime immediately, and or in the immediate future. And Kepler has not been operating for years now, so it could just be one of those cases. I'm not familiar enough with all of the different subfields of Spitzer to know whether there's this enormous wealth of information backed up for every subfield, but... Hopefully, I guess that's sort of the ideal, right? Where you just have way more data than you even know what to do with. That's an excellent point. Uh, there will be plenty of archival research that can go on. Um, the thing that I, I wonder, though, is we've done in the last few years a lot of astronomy that requires immediate telescope time. For instance, the Kilanova discovery that was made in gravitational waves, but then everyone turned their telescope to look at it. I don't know if that happens in infrared very often. I think it's probably more important in, in gamma rays and invisible. But if that happens, if there's something in infrared that we want to see quickly, maybe maybe a supernova, I, I don't know, we wouldn't be able to. We would have a, a gap where we just couldn't see it. You're right. That's a really good point. I don't know if it's a big deal or not. I honestly don't know enough about that. But that's the one thing I think of that you know, could be uh, unfortunate if something did happen. Right. Right. When right. is James Webb supposed to launch again? As of now, 2021, but okay. it's been pushed back many, many times. So, you know, it, it's tough because I, I want to be optimistic, but I, I think you have to just, you know, understand this. This is the, the reality of astronomy when you have these massive telescopes and, and they're going to work and they're going to be great. They just don't have the chance to mess it up. And getting it perfect before it launches is, is worth every, you know, time and penny it costs. Right. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to mention real quickly, uh, I think it's also worth talking about for a second. We we kind of joke about the relationship that astronomers have with dust, go back and forth on it. But I think dust was really just something to correct for before the data collection from Spitzer. Yeah. With missions like Spitzer in the infrared, it turned into one of the most important probes of astrophysical processes that we have. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're so right. I never thought of dust as a nuisance. I love dust. <laughs> my my first projects, well, several of my first projects were related to debris disks, which is just disks of dust. I love dust. I think it's great. But I guess I understand people who work on galaxies and whatnot 
don't like dust for whatever reason. <laughs> if astronomer Milena was around pre-2003, then he might uh, have different thoughts <laughs> yeah, on maybe, it. Yeah, maybe that's true. <laughs> the other great thing about Spitzer is that it wasn't ever supposed to detect exoplanets. And uh, was were exoplanets known when Spitzer was launched in 2003? I yeah. can't remember what year the first detection was. Yeah, they were first detected 1995. Um, okay. And then yes, first transit was 2000, I believe. Yeah. But, I mean, it's worth noting that they started preparation for the Spitzer mission in, like, 93 or something. And uh, there were a couple of mission scientists, they were talking about how, I mean, at the time, if you had proposed as a major component of this space mission to observe exoplanets, people would have thought you were crazy. Yeah, I mean, it just was not thought to be within the capabilities at the time. Yeah, and I mean, in the early days of exoplanets, it kind of seemed like people might just be crazy if they talked about exoplanets too much, because it was one of those things where it's like people didn't really know whether they actually existed. There had been so many falsified exoplanets that had been claimed over the past hundred years that it sort of became like almost taboo to an extent and so it's really fascinating that it became one of the main things that spitzer observed by the end of its mission even though if in 1993 you said oh we're just going to study exoplanets with this mission for much of its mission lifetime people would have probably thought you were crazy yeah yeah definitely well unfortunately we're coming up toward the end of our tribute to spitzer but, Milena, would you like to say a few words to this space telescope that has meant so much to so many people? <laughs> I would love to. Spitzer, thank you for your 16 years of dedicated service. Through your eyes, we've seen the scorched surfaces of hot Jupiters and the cradles of newborn stars in their first moments of ignition. You've taught us all about the miracle of dust, of course. <laughs> and because of your Earth-trailing orbit, we've unfortunately grown apart over the years, but you'll always be our infrared telescope. At least until James Webb. <laughs> and <laughs> if you'd like to participate in the discussion on Spitzer's decommissioning, you can also check out the hashtag SpitzerFinalVoyage on Twitter and learn more and follow along with us. This is not advertising for us because we have nothing to do with this, but we like Spitzer too, so. And with that, we conclude episode six of Astro Soundbites. Farewell, Spitzer. If you want to read the three Astrobites we talked about or read the papers they summarize, uh, check out the links down in the show notes. You'll also see links to some of the images we talked about early in the show. Look at some of the beautiful things that uh, we get to look at every day as astronomers. This makes six episodes, so we have five other full-length episodes that you can access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. As always, thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. <laughs> <laughs>